The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, it is one of those cases where history's narrative is as pregnant with possibilities as anything you will find in fiction. Roanoke Island. For American school children, it lives as one of those names, like the Donner Party, perhaps, which teachers cannot resist including in the curriculum. Not because those events are as important as the Civil War or the Great Depression, but because they're so damn compelling. They ask us to ask something profound about ourselves. The Donner Party, those pioneers stranded in the snows of the Sierra Nevadas, resorting to cannibalism. How bad did it get before they did that? And would I have done the same? What are the chances that I'll take that kind of a risk or face that kind of extreme in my life? And what would I do? What was it like for those eating and those who were eaten? For Roanoke Island, the questions are different. We don't know what happened to them. That's the mystery at the heart of the story, the one that makes this story as unforgettable as Paul Revere or Pearl Harbor. They were early settlers. This is the 16th century we're talking about. Shakespeare's era, for those of you putting your tempests in that teacup, although, find a different cup, actually. This was before tea had made it to England. It's the world of Sir Walter Raleigh attempting to found, for Elizabeth I, the first permanent English settlement in North America. They chose a few sites, they made a few attempts, and a hundred or so colonists attempted to make a go of it on their own, with supply ships attaching them to Europe, sometimes becoming delayed by weather or storm or the war between England and Spain, all the vagaries of 16th century ships at sea. The tethering would become untethered, pushing the colonists into unknown territory like a litter of abandoned kittens or a space pod being detached from the mothership. One hundred people or so living on a strange continent for several years, and then, when a supply ship finally made it back to check on them, the captain found something curious. The settlement had been fortified, but now it was empty, all the people gone, with no apparent explanation. Had they been massacred? There was no evidence of it. Had they relocated? But where? Further inland? Had they joined the Native American communities, assimilating as their best chance of survival? These men, women, and children, where were they? What had happened? A single clue was left, if it was even a clue, the word Croatoan, carved into the wooden palisade. The name of the place where they could be found, perhaps, Croatoan Island, the ship set sail to discover, but rough seas and a lost anchor meant they did not make it there to check. Enter the archaeologists, who, 
found nothing conclusive. Exit the archaeologists. Enter the historians, the teachers, the fascinated fabulists. Speculating everything from Spanish attacks to disease to space alien abductions. And now, enter the novelists, or at least one novelist, who has taken some of the most striking details from Roanoke and its legacy and turned them into a fascinating saga a family history reaching from the late 17th century into the mid-20th. Kimberly Brock and the Lost Book of Eleanor Dare, today on the History of Literature. Hey, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, your host here today, maybe gone tomorrow. What would you do if that happened? What would anyone do? You'd wonder, right? If I just disappeared, you'd wonder where I was and you'd wonder what had happened to me. And maybe you'd try to retrace my steps and see, was there a point where where Jack was afraid, where he was in danger? Was he surprised by what fate befell him? Was he scared? Was he brave? Just what happened? It's why we do forensic analyses of corpses and why shows about that are so popular. What's the narrative of that key moment when the usual steady hum of life starts to spark and crackle and maybe explode or maybe just fade away? What's the story? What the devil happened to this person? Maybe old Jack lost his mind and wandered off. Maybe he was mugged. Maybe he's lying in a ditch somewhere. Maybe he got some terrible disease. Maybe he cracked under pressure and and fled, seeking some new life. Who knows? A corpse gives us clues. But what if there are no bodies? The mystery is all we have. And what if it's not just one guy who slipped through the cracks, but a hundred A single person disappearing, well, that might just show we don't always keep good track of people. Sometimes people change their lives, escape artists and so on, (laughs) metaphysical escape artists. But a hundred, a hundred people, men, women, and children, how can that many people just vanish without a trace? Kimberly Brock get us going with that. These got her, these, this story got her imaginative wheels churning. There's also some 20th century discoveries that she uses for her novel. But before we get into the mysteries of the colony on Roanoke Island, we will talk to her about her writing process, how she got interested in this story, and what all that meant. Here's someone who has been to the rabbit hole and back, and now she's here to deliver the news. Our guest today, Kimberly Brock, after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. 
Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Kimberly Brock, the founder of Tinderbox Writers Workshop and the award-winning author of The River Witch, which earned her comparisons to Flannery O'Connor and Carson McCullers and the prestigious Georgia Author of the Year Award. She's here today to talk about her new novel, The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare. Kimberly Brock, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here and talk to you. So I can't wait to ask you about Roanoke, which has fascinated me since high school and how that plays into your book. But let's start with you. Did you grow up in Georgia? I did. I grew up about 30 minutes south of Chattanooga, Tennessee in Dalton, Georgia. I know you can't tell that listening to this accent. <laughs> yeah, and and have lived here most of my life. We moved around a little bit right after we got married in the late 90s, early 2000s. We were in Seattle for a few years and then North Carolina for a few years, and then back to North Georgia. I'm just north of Atlanta now. Mm. And what kind of childhood did you have? And specifically, how did books and reading fit into it? I grew up on a farm, and I was about a mile away from my grandparents, who also had a farm. So Mm -hmm. it was very rural. Rode my bicycle back and forth. We uh, lived in a farmhouse that was built in 1912. And it it was a mess when we first moved in. I was six years old and it just felt like it was built out of stories to me because it had been there for so long and we would have people show up. I remember this man showing up at the front door and wanting to come in and look at the house and telling us that he was born in the front room. Mm, So that was a big part of my childhood. Um, Story, story, stories. I think being from the South, that's part of it too. But aside from oral storytelling, we had no air conditioning. (laughs) And so going to the library in town was a big deal. And we loved going and being in the cool of it. And I can remember my earliest memory of walking into the library and looking at all of those books. And I was a kid that was always in trouble for talking too much in class. Uh And I looked around at all those books and I remember thinking, this is how you do it. You can talk forever if you write books. (laughs) I just, I love to read. I I read everything. I was always curled up with a book. Yeah. Did you have storytellers in your family? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think 
you know, you grow up listening to parables in church. And my grandfather, I always called him a, you know, like a hayseed evangelist because he spent a lot of time on his tractor Uh talking to himself and coming up with things that he thought about the world. And he sort of would relay those same little stories over and over again to people that he met, the people in our community. And even years after he's been gone, people will still say, oh, I remember Robert's story about this or that. And my mother loved reading. Um, storytelling is you'd sit around the table, you'd sit under the table <laughs> when you, when everybody was talking after dinner and learn a lot about your family and your neighbors. Yeah. And um, my grandmother had a party line. That's how old I am oh. with the neighbor down the street. And I can remember picking up the phone and listening in on her conversations to hear <laughs> right. with the neighbors. Right. So, yes. Lots of stories. A lot of gossip on the party line that you were able yeah. to overhear. Yeah, lots of language. <laughs> I learned a lot on the party line. <laughs> Did you have any bad storytellers in your family? Well, it's according to what you mean about that. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't mean uh, telling risque stories or something. I mean people who don't tell a story well, because I'll tell you, I do have someone like that in my family, and I'm not going to name names, but it always struck me that when this person would tell a story, it would kind of fall flat or it would go on too long and people would get bored or there wouldn't be a real sharp point to it. And it made me realize how good the other people were at telling stories and how fascinated we were as kids when we heard, you know, certain other individuals in the family tell a story. And I think it was, looking back, I think I was kind of learning how to tell a story by the negative example as well as the positive examples. That's hilarious. And (laughs) I don't know that I have ever thought about that. You know, I can remember we had jokes because people would tell the same story. And you would hate it because every time we would visit with a particular oh. relative, you knew that story was going to be the one you had to sit through over and over again. And it was like a bad joke at that point because you everybody knew the joke. So, ha, 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 we're yeah. having yeah. and laugh at the right places. <laughs> but I can't remember somebody being a really bad storyteller. That's good. That needs to go in a book. Yeah, right. <laughs> my son, my son, when he was little, had this funny thing. My wife, usually I was the one telling the stories, but once my wife told him a story and she had a real funny surprise punchline at the end of it. And he laughed so hard. And then he said, tell it again, tell it again. So she Aww. told it again. And then he said, okay, try it again because it wasn't as funny that time. <laughs> And, <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is the moment where he realizes that a surprise ending is, you know, you can't recreate it uh, just by repeating it. So it was very, a uh, very sweet moment. Okay, so you are there in the South. You're surrounded by storytellers. You're seeing books in the library. You yourself are a big talker. And at some point, you decide that you're going to write these books. How old were you when you tried your hand at fiction? I was, well, now we have to, we have to say, um, tried my hand at fiction probably as, as soon as I could scribble letters. I was making my poor siblings read these things or wrote plays and my mother was having to force them to act them out. You know, I, I got in trouble on the playground for making things up that scared some of the students in elementary school and had to apologize. And so stories and writing stories always there really bad poetry language arts fairs all of those things yeah 
But to actually write something that I thought I would publish, that didn't happen until, I guess, my 30s. You know, my dad always said, when you get a job, you need to have insurance. <laughs> and I thought, well, you can't publish a book. And, and I didn't think I could make a living doing that. My dad um, said the same thing. He said, if you get sick, I said, well, I don't need it because I'm, you know, I'm going to take the risk and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to live free. And he said, if you get sick, you will sink the family. This and is true. I realized he, he was right that I would because I couldn't, I knew that they would pour everything they had into yeah. my care and I couldn't take that risk that I would feel so guilty if they ever did that. And so, yeah, then it was exactly off to get so a I job. Found, like all of these other ways to tell stories. Uh, when I was a kid, I was a dancer and then I had really severe scoliosis and had a surgery and I thought I was going to teach dance, but that sort of went out the window and I ended up doing some theater in high school that I loved. So I went off to college and did some theater in college, and that's still storytelling. It's still expressing story. Yeah. And then I went from theater into education. I thought I was going to be a theater director and maybe a high school, and I ended up directing a children's play for older elementary kids that were all kinds of trouble, and I really liked them. Yeah, right. So I wound up in elementary education for kids with neurological and behavioral challenges. And I was still directing plays with them. I was still telling stories. I was teaching reading. But the writing part didn't happen until after I had my children and was at home. I had two children that were 16 months apart. And I just had time on my hands. And I wrote an email to an author and thanked her for a book that I loved of hers. I'd never done that before. I think it may have been the very first email I ever sent. And she answered me. And we had this dialogue back and forth because we were both from the South. And she said, have you ever written anything? Mm. And because you're a good storyteller. And I was exchanging these stories through email. And so I wrote my first short story. And she was part of a group of women that had put together a small press. And she bought it. And I thought, well, that was easy. I'll write yeah. a novel. <laughs> Which was not easy. And it was years and years before I wrote my first published novel. Yeah. So in my 30s, I guess, is when it really, I got the bug and I decided to try. Okay. And both of your novels have been set in the South. And I'm wondering, it's such a rich territory for writers. We have so many great novels and short stories that have come out of the South. And I'm wondering how you view it, if you view it as that kind of rich storytelling territory that it appears on the outside? Or do you wrestle with cliches about the South that you want to push back against? Or is it a, a blessing or a curse or something in between for a novelist today? In between. It's both. I have such a love-hate relationship with it. And I just wrote an article about this for Writer's Digest. Uh -huh. And I talked about the South. I really feel like the South is this big haunted house. It's full of all of these regrets, and it's built on top of so much that we talked about stories and being storytellers in the South. We tell so many stories in the South. I think there are maybe more that we don't tell. Mm. So it's rich in that element, but it's also not real. Like the South that you see in a story is really more of a fable, I think. Uh-huh. Um, we're inspecting it. 
And it's an origin story for our country. It's an origin story for our families, all of the history in America. I feel like, you know, you're wading through it when you try and write about it yeah. from the setting of the South. So that's how I feel about it. Have you ever been tempted to set a story in Seattle or somewhere else that doesn't have that um, kind of baggage? Yeah. I have. Mm-hmm. More though, I end up doing regional things and I end up moving, you know, from the, because the South has, it's so many different regions. I, I grew up in the foothills of Appalachia, but I love the Georgia coast. I love the South Carolina coast. I love all those different elements of the South sort of give me a lot to play with. So yeah. I wind up referencing other places and I loved Seattle. What I found interesting is while I was there, I would say this feels like, and it would be a place somewhere in the South. Yeah, right. So I end up writing about the South. I even think it's just in your bones, you know? And everybody does that, where they're from, I think. It's your mother's kitchen. Mm Mm-hmm. It is. Okay. So let's take a quick break and then come back with Kimberly Brock, and we will ask her about her new book, The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare. Okay, we're back talking with author Kimberly Brock, and we started to talk about the South, and you had mentioned an author. I'm wondering if we're going to get some synergy here, but I wanted to ask you about a book that you had mentioned in our email before this conversation, and that is Charms for the Easy Life by Kay Gibbons, uh, which I believe came out when you were in college. And I'm wondering, is that where you first read it, or did it come later? It came later. This was one of those books that I read after I uh, was in my 30s, and picked it up. And we were living in North Carolina at the time. We lived in Seattle four years. I had my first child there. We moved to North Carolina and I had my my son, my middle son there. And I didn't know anybody really yet. And I had never been. We were were in the Triangle area. And I was kind of just at home with babies and nothing to do. And I was getting bored and they would take naps. And so I had started discovering some of the North Carolina authors in the area. And when I found her, this was her first book that I read by her. I've later read all of her books, but I remember thinking, oh, wait, she sounds like I sound in my head. Her voice appealed to me and I read it over and over again. And I tend to do that with any author that I fall in love with. And I kind of get in a obsessive. I'll read all of their work and then I can't read anybody else for a long time. And she was one of those authors for me. I loved the language. I would go back and just read lines and underline lines and think about how she had strung things together. Now, was this before or after you had decided to take a, a turn at writing the short story and then later the novel? I think it was in between. I think I wrote the short story and then I found her books. So I know that it has influence my voice, but I also feel like it was like I recognized something in it. This is how I talk. This is how I think. This is how my words flow. And she's very character driven and her voice is very immediate and you are inside the head 
of this, usually a female character. And I just identified with it. I loved it. And I hadn't found that really. I have found it since in some other authors, but this was the first book I picked up that I felt that with. Yeah. And do you ever, I love examples. There's strewn throughout the history of literature of writers who find an author like that and then use them as kind of like their their morning wake up on their writing days. Like they'll, they want to get that voice in their head and just the way the fiction flows out of that person. And so they'll say, well, I read, uh, I think it was uh, Balzac said, I read Sir Walter Scott for an hour every morning and then I write, you know, just to, to kind of sharpen you up or to get your mind in the right place. Yeah, absolutely. I've done that with her. I do that with poetry. I do it with music you know, lyrics, there are different things that will trigger that for me. But you're right. It is a rhythm and a pattern and a mindset that you get into. But it's also the opposite. If I am deep in my work, I can't read anybody else or I lose my pattern and my flow. So a little of both, you know, you don't want to, I want to hear myself. And if I'm trying to recreate somebody else's voice, it will stall. You know, at some point, it's not true. You'll stall out. You can't be an imposter for your whole book. I can't anyway. Maybe it would be easier <laughs> if I could. <laughs> I also like the advice of people who will say like, okay, read all the Faulkner you can and then read all a bunch of Hemingway to get the Faulkner out of your system before you yes. actually sit down and write. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Okay, well, let's turn to the lost book of Eleanor Dare, which I understand you wrote or at least are publishing after a something like a 10-year hiatus between novels. Mm-hmm. So was this book revolving around in your mind the whole time or were you focused on other things? So both. I'm sorry, all my answers are both. I learned about the history of the Dare Stones. Um, which is an element in this book. It's sort of the second mystery. The first mystery is the lost colony of Roanoke, which Mm -hmm. most people learn about. And you mentioned before, you know, fourth or fifth grade. And here's this one piece of history that you actually hear and retain from elementary school because it's a story without an ending. And, and, you know, that every little kid that perks up, perks your ears up. But I was, looking, I was researching for the River Witch and specifically some Appalachian history for the grandmother in that book. And I tripped over an article about the Dare Stones. Mm. And they are located now at Brunel University in Gainesville, Georgia, which is a hop, skip, and a jump from where I grew up and where I live now. And I had never heard anything about them. Yeah, And that was like, you know, buried treasure. I was excited. At, and I, I'm a curious kid. I'm a curious adult. I get bored easily. And so something shiny really attracts my attention. And we moved a few years after I found them. I sort of just tucked the article away and I thought, ooh, I'm going to write something about that one day. And we moved back to Atlanta. So we weren't far from Gainesville. And I called and made an appointment and went up and saw the stones. Yeah. And that from that point on, I've been like a crockpot, kind of thinking about yeah. what could I possibly write about this thing? It's just intriguing. And I was sort of obsessed with the idea of it, but I couldn't figure out how I could wrap a story around it that would matter. It took me a long time to find that. So my 
21-year-old son was in pull-ups when mm. I found out about that history. <laughs> and <laughs> so that long, now not necessarily writing the book, but it's been in my brain that long trying to find out what what am I going to say about this? Well, what are the dare stones? Dare stones, you said? What are those? Yeah, see? Okay, so 1937, we're at the end of the Depression. Um, you know, Barnum is big at that time. Spectacles of all kinds were coming out of the woodwork. There were lots of fake effigies and crazy stuff like that in the news. So this man uh, and his wife are on vacation. They're from California, and he conveniently disappears into the ether after the stone is discovered, by the way, so nobody really knows who he was. Um, on vacation, they're driving through North Carolina, Eden to North Carolina. They stop on the highway, and he gets out, says he's looking for chestnuts. And they're about 50 miles inland from where Roanoke Island is located off the North Carolina coast, where the lost colony was at and would have disappeared from. Mm-hmm. And he trips over this big stone. And it has an inscription on it that he can't read, but he thinks to himself, maybe this is worth something. So he tosses it in his trunk and they go on their way. And on their trip, they come down through Atlanta and he stops in at Emory College, walks in with the stone because he thinks maybe they'll pay him, I guess. And says, what do you think? And over the course of the next few months, they lose their minds because all of the experts look at it. Experts from elsewhere come and look at it. And everybody's excited. Their initials, EWD, inscribed on this stone. And a message that they believe is Elizabethan English. And they think that it is a message from the daughter of the governor of the colony at Roanoke. Mm-hmm. Her name would have been Eleanor White Dare. Mm-hmm. Her father was John White. And her daughter would have been Virginia Dare. So they think they have solved the mystery. It says there was a massacre. Almost everyone is killed. Uh, she, Her husband and daughter have been killed. She survived along with a few others. And it, it gives you know, a sense that they're moving on with natives, please come find us, and that there may be another stone that is marking graves. So long story short, one of the professors at Emory his dad was the president at Bernal University, which was a women's college at, at the time in Gainesville. They take the stone to Bernal. And then they say, so, if anybody else finds any more of these stones, we'll pay you. <laughs> so you know what happens then. So over the course of the next couple of years, <laughs> like 48 stones show up with this story. I know, right? Okay. So there are fishy things about this because this is the 350th anniversary of of the colony disappearing, and there's a play that's now being produced, um, The Lost Colony, which you can still go and see in North Carolina, uh, by Paul Green was making lots of money for North Carolina, Gone with the Wind had happened, so the South was like in the news, and they basically, you know, became a big deal. It was all in the news. Everybody was excited about these stones. The stones story says that Eleanor survived, came and lived in North Georgia in a valley, married an Indian king, had a baby, and then she was cast out and sent on her way with the other survivors. And they came on down into Fulton County, Georgia, about 10 minutes from where I live right now, where she died in a cave. And I thought, 
yeah, that's fishy. Doesn't that sound convenient? And everybody thought that. And a Saturday Evening Post reporter debunked the whole thing in the early 40s. But Including the first stone? That's what I was going to say. Nobody, even until today, has been able to authenticate or prove that that first stone was a hoax. Yeah. And so when I went and saw it, I cried, and the poor little woman at the archive room was like, sweetheart, but I realized I didn't care at that point if it was real or not. I was really interested in it because I was remembering Eleanor. Yeah. So right. that, that's what the dare stones are. Nobody knows for real, and everything that you see, like if you watch the History Channel, it's like looking for Sasquatch and mm. the dare stones. You know, it, it, they're still kind of a joke. But it intrigued me to think that here was this piece of of history, whether the stone is authentically something that she or some survivor from the colony carved with her initials in it, it's still part of her story. And it's still a woman's story who's, again, part of American history and been lost. And that really intrigued me. Right. Well, when I looked her up, the big fact about her is that she is uh, generally acknowledged to have given birth to the first Christian born in Virginia, is how they put it. So she exactly she was pregnant. Um, was Nineteen. She, was she pregnant on the ship on her way over, or right after she yeah. arrived? Yeah, right. Big pregnant on the ship, and so you know she's like she's like the Madonna for the New World, and very important to them to have this child. But her story is. We know nothing. Like, we know here's this girl. She got married to the man that dad picked out. They got on a boat and came here. She had a baby and then she disappeared. And I thought that sounds like so many women's stories <laughs> in yeah. general. And I I was just intrigued by that. I, I thought about being a 19 year old girl. There I was with my little kids and standing there on the edge of the world. What if you had lost everything and everybody you had ever loved was gone? And what do you do next? What do you want? Why would you even bother leaving a stone? Hmm. And if that's even the, even the most remotely possible truth, I think all she would have wanted was to be remembered. That's all we all of us want. Hmm. Yeah. Knowing maybe, especially because they had left and knowing that there were people who were supposed to come back to the colony and they had to leave, they were delayed. And so the, the people had to, whatever they did, they flee, they fled or, or something, uh, knowing that there would be people there who would find kind of the empty colony and wonder. Yeah. And wonder. And there were so many different, I mean, there's tons of speculation and there's loads of research. And I mean, I love all of the theories because to me, (laughs) I don't think people, nobody agrees on anything now. Why would they have agreed then? And I think as soon as her father was sort of voted off the island and sent back to England for supplies right after her child was born, he didn't return for three years because there was a war and the ships were involved with the war. There was nobody, nobody was willing to give John White a boat to go back and look for the colonists because they were fighting with Spain. So three years go by before he can come back. And that's the part that we know is recorded in history. He does come back. He finds where they have, what it it appears they built a fort. And there's a palisade that has a Croatoan written on it. There's speculation about what that is. People think that it was 
a, a group that lived in a village on Hatteras Island. Maybe they went there. There was also speculation that they moved inland 50 miles. And there is a map that you can look at that only a few years ago we discovered had a patch on top of a, a place that looks like where the dare stone was found. Hmm. And so there's all of this speculation about it. There have been different people, you know, through 400 years of history who have said, oh, yes, those are our ancestors. Oh, yes, this is where they went. This is where they went. I don't know. There are myths about Virginia Dare. Um, you know, there's a white doe myth that she's the, a white doe. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I love all of those stories. Yeah. I don't know if we'll ever know what really happened. But I know that Eleanor was very inconvenient to colonization because if this was the first group that had women and children, and if bad things came from that, how are you going to convince the next group to go? So, boy, you know, sailors, pirates, they're disappearing all the time, but women and children, not so great. Right. So I think maybe they didn't look so hard for Eleanor. Yeah. <laughs> is what I think. <laughs> and and we, we look for her hard now, but I don't know if she was looked hard for then. And when those their stones were dismissed as a hoax, it was very embarrassing. And mm. so again, her story was dismissed. True or not, we you know, it's a little sketchy. So I I that's intriguing to me. Yeah. Now, some people who read the title and see that it's about Eleanor Dare might imagine that your novel is set in the colony itself. But I understand it's it's set in the World War II era. And is that because of the Dare Stones or what's the? Yeah. yeah. OK, so yeah. Alice and Penn are descendants of Eleanor's right. and then they are trying to kind of unravel this mystery, perhaps. Right. And okay. so I started out trying to write Eleanor's story. And it was so boring. I just, I'm not a historian. Oh, I'm a storyteller. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I don't care. I don't care about any of this. And it just was very um, dry and typical. I was trying to do that typical dual timeline thing. And I didn't, I couldn't attach to anything. I couldn't figure mm. out what I was writing about. Mm-hmm. And so I sat down and I thought, okay, I have this stone and it has the date 1591 carved into it. So we know, let's say that's when that stone was carved. Then we know it was found in 1937, but where was it all the time in between? Did it lay right there on the ground? Did it mean something to somebody and who would it have meant something to? Mm. And then my next question was, what would it have meant to them when it was dismissed the second mm. time? Mm. So I, that's when I started imagining these women that had survived. Um, if Eleanor had survived, and I totally ditched, aside from the first stone, I ditched the rest of the story, that yeah. those other stones. Because I thought, yeah. That, yeah, I thought, you know, that just sounds like a story a man in 1937 might have made up. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I wanted to tell a woman's story, and I started doing a lot of research about how women moved through the years of American history from that time, where they would have moved and how they would have been moved, what their lives might have been like. And I imagined 16 generations of women down to the end of World War II, which, you know, when you're living through the end of World War II, you don't know you are. But they, Alice is a widow, Penn is her daughter looking at her saying, who are you and who are we and what are we going to do next? What happens now? 
Mm-hmm. And I feel like that must have felt a lot, a lot like what Eleanor was feeling. Yeah. What is this world I'm standing in? Right. And maybe how a lot of us feel right now. Mm. So that's what I was trying to do with this novel is answer some questions about how women move through the world mm. and, and how we pass down our stories and our histories. And what can you tell us about the lost book? Or is that too much of a spoiler to ask for a, ask you for an no, answer no. to that? No, that's um, so this book is Eleanor's mother's book. And women kept what's called commonplace books mm-hmm. um, filled with prayers and recipes and whatever they wanted to put in there, their daily, you know, journals and art. And I have always thought, wouldn't it be lovely to have something like that, that had passed down through your family? And it's not necessarily um, the truth. It's pieces of things mm-hmm. that, that somebody thought important to share. Mm-hmm. And so it tells a story as a whole. And I, um, I grew up with a, a family portrait in the, fo- the foyer of our home. And then on either side of our family portrait, my dad had his side of the family back to ten types. And on my mom's side, it was the same. And we would stand there, and my dad was a big historian, and he loved our family history, and he would say, no, that's your granddad, and that's your granddad's granddad's parents, and there's the mm-hmm. SOB that left so-and-so. And, you know, we'd stand yeah. there and, and look at all of them, and I remember thinking, I wish I knew all the stories. I could see them and knew bits and pieces. Yeah. So that influenced the idea of this book being handed down generation to generation and an oral history being handed down along with it. And it get, I figured it would give readers a glimpse of each of these women because I couldn't write a novel with 16 generations of that much detail. I had to give you bits and pieces. Right. And it's where I put Eleanor's story. Mm. And in this novel, it's not, it's not a true story or a true history for Eleanor, but it's a story that Alice's mother has written as an oral history that's been passed down generation to generation. It's a mother's story, what you tell your daughter and maybe what you don't, you know, the things you leave out, the things that you embellish and the ways that you want to pass wisdom or whatever. So Eleanor's tale is at the center of this book and Alice and Penn kind of have to grapple with what they believe is true about their family history, what they believe about Eleanor and what they can make of that to help them know what to do next now that this war is ending and they're standing there on the precipice of a whole new world for women at that time. Yeah. Well, I love the idea because, especially because so many women's stories have been lost in, in throughout time. We usually tell the story of, you know, some people write history and it's only about Kings and presidents Mm -hmm. and, you know, the leaders of a colony or, and and so on, or, or sometimes the only people who are given the pen and, and encouraged to write things down are the men and, so the women's story just become lost. And so reimagining them for us is going to be a treat for me to read. Oh, thank you. I had a good time doing it, but it really, I had to give myself permission to do it. It, it was hard. I, I didn't write Eleanor's portion of this book until I'd already turned in the, the 1945 portion mm. of the novel thinking it was finished. Mm-hmm. And my agent said, this is lovely. Now where's the rest? Oh. I know yeah. you have it all in your head, and I did. <laughs> I had notepads full of all of these ideas about because I had to know how I would have gotten this family yeah. from one place to the next, and and 
deviating from what was on the stones. I, you know, I did what I wanted with it, but I, I didn't want to write Eleanor's story. And I had to come to a place where I realized it was a, you know, it's like a game of telephone. They've been passing it down for 16 generations. So it may not be true, but it's something that they're still telling. It still has influence, still helping generations later of these these girls that are growing up looking back over their shoulder at their forebears to know who they are now and, and how they move forward. Mm, right. Okay. So I have a surprise bonus question for you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> are, uh, are you ready? I'm ready. You are a young middle-class woman living in London in 1585. You understand there is a fleet setting out soon with the goal of establishing a new colony in the Americas. It will be an adventure with the promise of a better life, but it will also be full of hardship and danger. Do you go? If my daddy wants me to. Mm. That's the, I was going to I was going to propose a bunch of different facts in order to tilt your answer one way or the other like if you're pregnant does that mean you'll stay home if you're if you have a chance to go to Paris instead do you do that so uh I'm guessing that that was the deciding factor for Eleanor Dare Absolutely mm. so John White had gone on multiple excursions before mm-hmm. this one um he was a map maker before that he was a limner so he painted miniature portraits, and there are no portraits of Eleanor anywhere. Hmm. You can still see his artwork that he did um, to influence the queen so that they would continue to send these excursions. Um, he went on these early journeys, and he did watercolors that are beautiful of the New World and the Native Americans. And I can imagine Eleanor. Eleanor's mother died. And an infant son died. And so Eleanor is alone, and Dad is literally leaving the known world over and over again. What is he so in love with? What is he, is it his grief? Is he, whatever he's doing it, he's not doing it with her. And so I can imagine her being so compelled to try and be part of that. Yeah. And the way to do that at that time would have been to have a child to help make the new world that he wanted so badly. And I, I go a little further with that and her reasoning and, and what she does in the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's ah. love. It's love. It's yeah. love. Yeah. And I had a picture, you know, she must've been looking at it and thinking, what is there? What is there? Why, why can't I see that? Why am I being left here? I want to go too. And so you would take that chance, but I think the only reason you would ever take that chance is love. Yeah, this might be a a weird analogy, but I'm almost reminded when you're describing that of something I heard about the Beatles, where Paul McCartney didn't really want to take LSD, but he had these three best friends who had taken it, and they were experiencing something, and he just didn't want to be left out. And so he finally did it just because he wanted to be part of that group, and they were so drawn to it. Yeah. It's, I really think that that has a lot to do with why anybody does anything, mm, mm-hmm. um, not being alone. Yeah. And, the, and yet she wound up so alone if she survived at all for, yeah. for any length of time, even if she only survived briefly after her father left. But the sad thing is his entire family, his entire family was gone. That was it. 
Mm. We know little about them. And then you can dig things up. And I was very selective about what I put in the book and what I left out because, you know, from 1945, my two characters at that point, what are they really going to know? Not maybe not even as much as I know now. So Mm -hmm. I'm careful about how much I put in there. And you don't want to bog your reader down. You want them to be on a journey with with a character, not necessarily there for a history lesson. So I hope I got that balance right. Maybe not. I know some people are going to pick it up and they're really going to want it to be that traditional and popular right now, historical, (laughs) dual timeline, and you've got spies. But this is a home front story and it's really women's and it leans a little literary. And I want people to finish this book and instead of being annoyed that they don't know that they have solved the mystery of the lost colony or found Eleanor Dare. I want them to love the mystery most of all. Well, the book is called The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare. Kimberly Brock, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. And that is going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Kim Brock for joining me. We'll be back. Speaking of mysteries, we're still chasing down Christina Rossetti and how she came to write Goblin Market. That is on our radar. That's in our sights. Do check out The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare by Ms. Kimberly Brock. It's a pleasure to have her here and see if maybe... Maybe that novel gets you some answers to some of these questions or gets you to think about families and people and the world in some brave new way. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.